Luke chapter 14 is where we're going to be this morning. We're picking up a few verses after where we left off last week. Luke chapter 14, we're going to start in verse 25 if you want to go ahead and turn there. But while you are, um, we're going to be in the lectionary for two more weeks after today. Then we're starting our storied series in church emphasis. It's going to be interesting to me that um, for the last three weeks, including today, um, we've been in, as we've been following the lectionary, we've been in kind of a mini-series um, because each week the lectionary has led us to the topic of obedience. Um, we've talked about obedience being the path, being the journey, and full obedience as a follower of Jesus. We've talked about fully surrendering to the way of Jesus. And that's kind of concluding today. And I'm just going to warn you, I think that the text that we're reading this morning might be the most offensive thing that Jesus says. So get excited. <laughs> Luke chapter 14, starting in verse 25. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus. And turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me, cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't you first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000. If he's not able, he'll send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Let's pray. God, we approach a difficult text this morning. But we approach it as we always do, reminding ourselves that we are here to hear from you, to be formed by your word. God, we ask that your name would be the name that matters to us this morning. That any of my opinions, my thoughts, my perspectives that are not from you, that they would be revealed, that they could be rejected. But that what is from you, we trust your Holy Spirit. What's from you would linger in our minds and hearts and form us into your image. We love you, Jesus. Amen. <clears throat> um, I, I've shared this quote a couple times at the fold. One of my favorite quotes of all time comes from the author John Steinbeck in his expansive novel, East of Eden. And late in the novel, he um, paints a picture of three of his characters deeply discussing <clears throat> the story of Cain and Abel from Genesis. And they're discussing and wrestling with the complicated nature of the story. And he puts this line into the mouth of one of his characters. He says, if the story troubles us, it must be that we find the trouble in ourselves. And if I can be honest with you, as I have studied this story this week, and wrestled with this story, and worked on this sermon, and prayed about this, I have been troubled this week. This is a troubling story. It makes me think of um, about a year after Jen and I got married, eight years ago, we've been married for nine years, 
eight years ago. Um, I was a youth pastor. We were living in South Dakota. um, And we actually, in January of that year, we began looking to buy a house, wanting to, to put down roots. So we began to pray and seek the Lord and begin the process of buying a house. And as we were praying, we felt very clearly and very strongly from the Lord that this is not your home. This is not where you're supposed to be. And as we prayed about it, it became clear to us you know, from, from the Lord, we believed it was obedience to the Lord that we were supposed to pack up and move. We were supposed to resign our job, um, resign my job as a youth pastor. She was on staff doing graphic design at the church as well. We were supposed to quit our jobs. And we thought for sure, we knew, we knew from the Lord that he was saying to move. And we thought for sure that we knew where he was calling us. So I told my boss, um, the lead pastor, and we set an end date of my time at the church, which was in June of that year. And then we began working towards this goal that we thought we were headed towards. And that goal, that door was shut with flourish. Like that door was just slammed in our face. Um, And it became abundantly clear that that was not the direction that we were going to be going with our lives. And so we found ourselves having resigned one job, knowing that that was from the Lord, that we were supposed to move, but with absolutely no idea where we were going to go next. And April came and May came, and I started sending out my resume to every job in a church I could find that I seemed even remotely qualified for and a lot that I was just fully unqualified for, (laughs) just sending my resume out to everybody. Um, jobs I didn't even want, but I was like, hey, God called me to be a pastor, and this is in a church, so just like, and I mean, May went by, and June went by, and it wasn't that I was getting a lot of rejections. The few emails that I was getting back were, we don't think you're a good fit, or we've already filled the position, but most, mostly I was just getting left on red. I was just like, no email, no call, no nothing, sitting there wondering if the resume I sent out six weeks ago is sitting in someone's inbox or whether they're deliberating over it and having absolutely no idea. And then my job ended in June, and we got to this really, really uncomfortable time in which we could pick the date on the calendar. We could circle the day that our money ran out, but we didn't have a job. Yeah, you really like to like, put that date on the calendar, right? It's like birthdays, holidays, the day you run out of money. <laughs> and like I was stressed. Um, if you know anything about the Enneagram, I am a three. I really like to produce. I really like to do stuff. I like to, you know, I like to be busy, and I wasn't busy. I didn't have anything to do. I had no, like, no options. I was feeling like maybe I'm a failure. Maybe I misheard the Lord. And have you, ever, have you ever been in a time of life where you thought you were handling the stress really well until something tiny happens? And then it's like someone takes a toy from a toddler except you're an adult. Um, I remember one morning our internet went out in our house. And this was like week two or three of me like not having a job and not having anything to do and having no emails or prospects. And I remember sitting on the floor with our internet router that I could not fix and just losing it. I mean, I just like, I slammed my hand on the floor. I'm sure I said something unkind to Jen and just left the house. I was like, this is it. I'm done. I've got to get out. I wasn't like leaving, leaving. I was just getting out of the house. But I drove to a park. Um, It was the only place I could think of within a reasonable drive that might not have people where I could be alone. It's the middle of the day. I drove to this park that had this grassy knoll kind of overlooking the city. And I got out of my car and probably slammed the door and walked as far away as I could get from anybody else and just started yelling at God. And I don't think I was yelling out loud, you know, but like with every bit of emotion in me, I was saying to God, 
how could you do this? You told me to be a pastor. You told me to do, you told me this was my career. You gave me the gift, you gave me the passion, you gave me, I, I went to college for this and look how much debt I've got because of what you told me to do and now I can't even get a job in the field you called me to do. In the thing, God, what is going on? I was angry and I was yelling at the Lord. I was, I was mad because, because this is what he told me to do. And finally, I think I yelled myself out. And if you've been walking for the Lord, with the Lord for a while, you'll probably recognize this feeling. I can't really explain it. God didn't speak to me with an audible voice, but I knew it was the Lord. And the first thing the Lord said was, are you done? And I think I said, I think so. And, and then the Lord said, CJ, are, are you going to follow me? Or are you going to follow me where, I, where you want me to send you? Are you going to follow me if it means working at Walmart and, and not in the place that you got your degree in? Are you going to follow me if it means your life doesn't look anything like you thought it was going to? Or did you sign up to follow me because of the plans you thought I had for you? And I realized in that moment that I had been leveraging my expectations. I had been leveraging what God called me to do in the past over God as if it was his responsibility to do what I wanted him to do now. As if it was his responsibility to not change my calling. As if it was his responsibility to to not have a different plan. And, And I finally... In this interaction with the Lord got to this place, and we pro- maybe you've been here where you say something that you don't really mean yet, but you say it because you want to mean it. And you say it in an attempt to learn to mean it. I finally said, God, I want to follow you. Like, wherever that means. In whatever career. If you have a different job, if you have a different path for me. If I need to get a job at a Walmart, or if you have a job for me at a church, whatever it is, I follow you. This language that, that Jesus uses is, it's honestly almost offensive. It's especially offensive to our, to our modern sensibilities. It, it's drastic. It's a hyperbolic culture. It's, um, it's meant to be kind of in, in your face and, and ostentatious even. And this idea that, that following Jesus means rejecting, means letting go of the life that we've expected, the life that we have for ourselves. I mean, it's, it's difficult and it's hard to imagine. It's hard to wrap your mind around. And, and, and this story even loses some of its edge in our modern culture. Because Jesus says, after he says, you'll have to hate your father and mother and your children and spouse and brothers and sisters, which seems offensive enough, and he says, take up your cross and follow me. And we live in a world where crosses are everywhere. You know, we got cross t-shirts and cross hats and cross bumper stickers and crosses on church logos and crosses everywhere. If you're like me and you grow up on, grew up on the edgy side of youth group culture, you've probably got a couple cross tattoos. I've got like, I've got two cross tattoos and a Hebrew tattoo. I'm like the millennial pastor starter pack up here. Just, like, I just need some Yeezys and then I'll be ready to go. But 
But we, we see crosses everywhere. And we know, reading this story, that Jesus is alluding, that, that he's foreshadowing his death on the cross, when he would literally physically carry his cross up to the hill of Calvary where it would be put in the ground with him upon it. He's foreshadowing that, but they didn't know that. At this time in history, the cross, the only implication of the cross was how Romans killed people they didn't like. And it wasn't just the, the punishment that everybody got. It was the punishment that violent thieves and people, people who rebelled against the empire and people that Rome was making a point of. I mean, they hung you on a cross for everybody to see. It was not a respectful way to die. So when Jesus says, take up your cross, he's, he's saying something that is absolutely shocking. Because there's no other implication of the cross at this point than how Rome kills criminals. And see, at this point in history, people were starting to think maybe Jesus is the Messiah, maybe Jesus is the Savior. But at this point in in Jewish culture, everybody thought that the Messiah, the Savior, the Redeemer, the one that God was going to send was going to come with a sword, that he was going to gather an army and he was going to overthrow Rome. He was going to put Rome in its place and restore the people of Israel to their power and their wealth and their prosperity like they had been back in the times of David and Solomon. That's what they thought that the Messiah was going to do. And here Jesus is, this potential Messiah, saying, if you want to follow me, you've got to take upon yourself the execution tool of the empire. He's saying, this is not what you were expecting. Following me is a completely different life. I am the Messiah, but I am not here to give you what you thought I was. See, the, the, the cross, this statement, the cross, take up your cross, is antithetical to the idea of loving your own life. And we don't mean this in the sense of self-hatred or anything like that, but it's antithetical to the idea of building identity and building reputation and building wealth and building power for self, of building empire for self. It's antithetical to the idea of staking our life on our own skill set, goals, accomplishments, acquired resources. It's completely antithetical to that. And it's antithetical to the idea of prioritizing family in the way that it was in that culture. Now, it's worth noting that this is a hyperbolic culture. This is a culture, it's kind of like the difference between the South and the United States and the North. We are much more prone to hyperbole in the South than they are in the North. We are much more likely to exaggerate to make a point down here. Um, and in that culture, a lot, most of the scholars believe that Jesus was was using this hyperbolic language. He was actually referencing, um, some believe that he was referencing times in the Old Testament where we read phrases like, Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated, or Rachel I have loved and Leah I have hated, where the implication is not that you hold bitterness or anger towards someone, but the idea is that the actions of preference, the actions of love, will cause the other side to perceive that as neglect or hatred. Is that the actions will create a clear difference in preference or a clear difference in loyalty. And at that time in history, family was everything. 
Like we say family's everything sometimes nowadays, but back then when they said family was everything, it meant you lived with your family. Your house was probably attached to your family's house. Your family was your reputation. Your family was your rooted place in the world. Your children were your future and your goals. Your siblings and your spouse represented your your wealth and your accomplishments. You wanted to marry someone from a good family. You wanted to be part of a good family. So when Jesus is saying you must hate your family, yes, even your own life, he's saying that taking up your cross to follow me is a completely different way of living it's a completely different way of life it's a costly way of life following jesus is not easy i wish i could tell you otherwise many times i wish that i could preach sermons in which i say that jesus offers the solution to every problem unfortunately that is not in the bible Jesus offers the solution to sin in an eternal sense. He doesn't offer the solution to every problem in life. We find good advice and wisdom and wise counsel and wise practice in Scripture. But we are promised blessings and persecutions, joy and suffering. And following Jesus is, is the life that we choose in which we confront the darkness in ourselves rather than deny it in which we repent of our sins rather than hide them, in which we confess our sins to one another rather than keeping secrets. It's the life in which we see humility as the highest value rather than building up self or clinging to pride. It's the life in which servanthood is the highest position in the kingdom. And there was a, a church planter and missionary and abolitionist pre-Civil War. He, plant, he was a pastor from, I believe, Indiana who moved to the Carolinas to plant churches that were multiracial pre-Civil War. And he said it like this. The quote's going to be up here on the screen. He says, we must have his spirit if we would be his. It is a spirit to labor, suffer for the good of man. We must be willing to sacrifice property. He became poor. Reputation, he made himself of no reputation. And person, he was wounded, bruised, and chastised, all for man, yea, for his enemies. He suffered patiently, suffered not unnecessarily, but in harmony with the will of his father. Those who do not imitate him are not Christians, whether individuals or organizations. Dear reader, how much are you willing to sacrifice? How much have you suffered in property, reputation, or person for the good of your race? Wherein have you denied yourself daily and of what today? When we talk of discipleship to Jesus, we talk of a difficult life. We talk of a costly decision. And and in our kind of modern dualistic world, Uh, we have a hard time holding ideas, two ideas that seem to contrast. So when we talk about this, it's easy for us to slip into legalism. It's easy for us to slip into shame and to guilt because for us, we talk about the cost of discipleship as it is often called. We talk about the weight and the significance of the decision that we make to follow Jesus. And we talk about the, the unconditional love of Jesus, the forgiveness that is offered to us outright if we would believe and trust in the work of Jesus on the cross. And it seems like if forgiveness is free, then discipleship can't cost. It seems like these are contrary ideas, that they are backwards ideas. But it's a little bit like this. Have any of you ever, ever been on a road trip out west? Anybody? Okay, a couple of people. Yeah. All right. Then you know, we used to live in South Dakota. You know that there are times out west where you 
drive for 50, 75, 100 miles, and there's not even like another human, let alone a gas station. And I very distinctly remember a time where Jen and I were driving out west, and we had 25 miles left in our tank, and we were 25 miles away from a gas station. And we were like driving to this place, because the only way to get gas was to spend gas, right? Like we had to go there or we had to not have gas. So we're, I'm like laying hands on the car, naming and claiming extra provision. God, stretch out the miles, stretch out the gas. And like we're coasting down the hill. I'm putting it in neutral every time we go down a hill to try to make it, just praying. And we roll into this gas station. And honestly, like we're in the middle of nowhere, South Dakota. It wasn't like a BP. It was like Uncle Jimmy John's gas stop or something like that. Like it was wild and we made it. Um, And that was a crazy night in general um, in which I multiple times thought we were going to die or wind up in a horror movie. But that's for a different sermon. Um, See, the whole story of Scripture is the idea that it is actually because of the free gift that Jesus offers, because of the unconditional love that we receive, that we can actually choose the consequences of discipleship, the implications of discipleship. It is actually because of the significant love that Jesus offers, because Jesus offers us life. Jesus offers us life. He offers us a completely new way of living, a new way of interacting with the world. He offers us the life we have always been longing for. But the reality of that life is that none of us have the capacity to live two of them. So we have to lay down a life to take up the life of Jesus. We have to lay down expectations to take up the expectations of Jesus. We have to lay down a way to take up the way. And the beauty of forgiveness is that every time we fall short and we fall back, Jesus says, says you are forgiven and you are loved. Keep following the way. It's this beautiful paradox that it costs much, but the cost was paid on the cross. But because the cost was paid on the cross, it demands much of us. It's this paradox in which we live, that it is because of the beauty and the love of Jesus that we see on the cross that we can, in fact, trust the goodness of his way. It is when you see the love poured out in the blood of Jesus on the cross that you can trust. If he loves me that much, then his way must be worth it. It's when we see Jesus as good savior and good redeemer and the lover of our souls that we can also see him as good teacher whose teachings are good enough to follow, no matter the implications. It's because of the love of Jesus that we are able to look at our lives and count the cost, as it's called, to trust that his different way is better. A theologian, probably the the preeminent theologian of the modern era, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said it like this. It's going to be up on the screen. He says, Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life. And it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin and grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it costs God the life of his son. You were bought at a price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was writing during the time of World War II. 
uh, he knew much of cost and the cost of discipleship. See, this is the reality that we live in as followers of Jesus. We live in this beautiful tension in which we know, we know beyond the shadow of a doubt that we are unconditionally loved, that we are unconditionally loved because God loves us, that we are forgiven, that the price paid on the cross was enough for past, present, and future, and that because of the significance of that, we are invited into a different way of living that is difficult and countercultural and revolutionary, one, one that is opposed to the values of the world around us. And I do not mean in the confrontational, angry, get in a fight on Twitter way, but I mean in the sacrificial generosity, in the forgiving and loving of enemies, in the humility and in the confession of sin kind of way, in the type of way in which our values that honor others above ourselves cast a shadow upon the world that values self above others. It's a different way, and it's a costly way. And it's the way of Jesus. And it's the way of discipleship. But I have to tell you that this story troubles me. Because as I was studying for it this week. And as I've been wrestling with this. I have found myself wanting to say to the Lord. I already paid the price. I've found myself wanting to say to the Lord. I paid paid the cost of discipleship years ago. I found myself wanting to say, Jesus, I left the job in South Dakota for you. Jesus, I sold my house and then moved into a basement apartment full of 20-year-olds with a toddler and two dogs for you. Jesus, we became missionary. Jesus, we have done all, we have counted the cost over and over again. Why does it still cost? As some of you know, you know, Jen and I's story, it's been a really rough couple years. And I don't say that to garner pity or anything like that. You know, in March we had a miscarriage. Some of you know that. And then we've been through a pandemic like everybody else. And if you're familiar with the story of the fold, you know that the original planter is my best friend. It's been a rough couple of years. And honestly, as I've been studying this week, I've found myself saying, God, <laughs> this way is hard. And it seems like it should be easier by now. It seems like I have, have earned something different. And this is what I've realized, is that because of the immense love of Jesus that is poured out to us, the way of discipleship is not a decision that we did make. It's a decision we do make. Because we are forgiven and loved unconditionally forever, Choosing to follow in the way of Jesus is not so much about what I chose last year or 10 years ago or yesterday, but it's about the decision to wake up today facing the temptation to live a different way and choose today to live the way of Jesus. It's about looking at today and saying, it is still worth the cost, Jesus, because of the price you paid. It's it's waking up today and saying, because you are my good teacher, I know that your ways are good today, whether joy or trial confront me, whether abundance or little, whether sacrifice or prosperity, your ways are good today. This is the beauty of grace. This is the beauty that's offered to each of us. Because if if because of the forgiveness and love of Jesus, the decision to to walk in the way of, of Jesus is reflected in what I do today, then the mistakes I made yesterday do not necessarily reflect my intimacy with Jesus. Because we are continually offered mercy 
we are, his mercies are fresh every morning, then I might have been living in a season of apathy and today I choose the way of Jesus because I have been forgiven and am loved and have, all, and have been reconciled to him through the cross. Today I choose. It's not about the commitments that I make when life gets better or when life gets easier. It's not about my promises that when I get more money, I'll do this, or when I get more time, I'll do that. It's about the decisions I make today based on my situation today because I am called to be a disciple today. So here's how we're going to respond. Jack and Caroline are going to come up, and we're going to close in worship, but I'm going to leave some space for us to kind of process this idea together because maybe you, like me, have found yourself needing to simply examine whether you have been counting the cost each day. Maybe you've found yourself in a place lately where you have been like me looking back on your life and saying, Jesus, I already paid the cost. I'm tired of paying it. And you have lost sight of the price that was paid. But there might be some of you today, because I know that so many of us, when we talk about this, we, talk, we, we fall into guilt, we fall into shame, we fall into legalism. And maybe as you examine your life in prayer in a few minutes, what you're going to realize is that even when you didn't like it, even when it didn't feel right, even when it didn't feel true, you have actually made the decision each day to follow in the way of Jesus. Not perfectly. You've made mistakes along the way, but you have woken up and you've consistently chosen. I trust Jesus. And for you, this is an encouraging message because you realize that even when it didn't feel good, you actually have counted the cost. Uh, Maybe you are the only one who can't see it, and you need the Holy Spirit to whisper into your heart, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been counting the cost. Because it's about the decisions that I'm making today. Maybe the mistakes from last year are weighing on your mind, telling you that you cannot follow Jesus, that you don't have any intimacy, but the Holy Spirit is going to whisper into your heart, you have counted the cost today. You have been choosing to follow me in intimacy today. So I'm just going to encourage you, if you've got a journal, if you've got your phone, to just spend a few minutes as we prepare for worship processing with the Holy Spirit. Have I counted the cost of discipleship? And as we do this, we're trusting that the Holy Spirit is good and the Holy Spirit is kind. The Holy Spirit will not lead us to shame. There is no guilt in this because we are forgiven. The only way that we can interact with this question in health and in joy is because we know we are forgiven and loved and that the mistakes we've made do not affect our forgiveness or our love. So it is with joy that we respond to the invitation of Jesus to follow rather than shame that we realize the places we aren't following. Do you see the difference? It's a joyful invitation because of love and forgiveness. It's not a shameful condemnation because we might not have lived up. But the way of Jesus is costly. And the way of Jesus has been paid by Jesus. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we come to you today as a community of people who long to follow you who long to follow in your way, to trust your ways. We come to you as a community who regularly sings and celebrates the price that you have paid on the cross for us. That we have such joy and such hope in the immense and unconditional love you pour out to us time and time again. And today we come to you as a community saying, in your love, 
Show us our hearts so that we may not cheapen the grace that you have offered, but that we may take seriously the value of your way. We trust that you are gentle and kind, and it's that your kindness that leads us to repentance. So we know that when we open up our hearts in vulnerability to you, asking you to show them to us, that we can trust your gentle guidance, your small, still voice to minister to us with love and invite us into a better way. Because we know this, we ask you now to show us the ways which we have been counting the cost. We love you. 